Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. Month, we're turning our gaze to China's video game industry, the world's biggest market, which is driving pop culture in China and beyond, including the song you just heard from League of Legends virtual pop group KDA, voiced by Korean, American, and Chinese pop singers. Even on YouTube, which is banned in China, the first song garnered half a billion downloads. China now has more gamers than the entire populations of the U.S., Japan, Germany, France, and the U.K. combined. Its most popular game, Honor of Kings, a League of Legends ripoff, had a hundred million daily players in China alone at one point. It's a world leader at esports, even though the government deeply distrusts the entire industry. <laughs> Today we're going to examine the tension between a government and old people in general, gripped by moral panic about video games, companies eager to profit from them, and young folks who are among the world's most savvy consumers. We're joined from Hong Kong by game developer Alison Yang Jing, who writes about video games for Initium in Hong Kong. Hugh Davies in Melbourne, who's a postdoctoral fellow at RMIT and a video game curator. And from the US by Marcella Zablowitz at Pace College, who's written a book called Mapping Digital Game Culture in China. Alison, let's start with you. You grew up in China and I understand that there was a government ban on consoles that lasted 15 years. I mean, when you were young, was it easy to get hold of video games? Uh, I didn't have my own computer until I was 13 and... Back then, we're not encouraged to play games because we are more supposed to study. It's a Chinese parenting thing. But as kids, we still manage to get pirate DVDs, not DVDs, CD-ROMs, and get it installed in home computer. And also, there was internet cafes open. If you're into especially multiple-person online games, you go to internet cafe, and it was relatively cheap, 4 to 7 RMB per hour. What kind of games were you playing then? Were you playing Chinese games or international games? Um, there weren't so many Chinese games as now. Most of the games are localized versions of American games or Japanese games. It was in the 1990s, mid-1990s to late-1990s. And at the same time, Taiwanese game industry was booming at the time. There is a cultural proximity and also the language is the same. So it's very easy to understand. And at the time, Taiwanese game developers were deeply interested in martial art history or all the story tales and legends in Asian Chinese archaeology, sometimes even. So we play a lot of that too. Uh, Marcella, right from the beginning, um, China's leaders were worried about the role of video games, describing them as, quote, digital opium. Uh, this language harks back to the opium wars and the idea of a sort of an insidious, uh, addictive influence brought in by a dissipated Western, uh, Western culture. Uh, how much has this view, do you think, shaped Beijing's attitudes towards video games? 
I think that it's this phrase, Jing Shen Yapian, digital opium or spiritual opium, that is, that gets used a lot in particular in the media. And uh, you hear it in newspaper articles uh, or see it in newspaper articles. First of all, there is this sort of effort to define consumption, particularly in spaces like internet cafes, as this form of spiritual opium, right? It has to do with things like who's playing them, where games are being played. You know, when we think of the history of opium use in China, there's an interesting history there in that opium itself historically was not always considered something terrible. It was not always a scourge on the nation. Um, That initially when opium was used in small sort of elite circles, historically speaking, opium use was uh, acceptable. It was cultured. It was part of high society. Uh, And then the point that many historians of opium use have made is that there um, use of opium went underwent this sort of political redefinition, whereby once opium began to be used in public spaces, like opium dens, for example, that's the moment at which all of a sudden the government became very concerned about it. Um, and this is something that we see time and again, the sort of political redefinition of consumption, that when the elite are doing it, that when it's something that's um, confined to sort of high society, it's okay. Uh, but when it becomes something used by the masses, that's when we become concerned about it. And I think that is very much what happened in the case of digital gaming as well in internet cafes. When internet cafes first came on the scene in um, you know late 1990s, early 2000s, they were a space of cultural refinement in that the people who were accessing the internet there were perceived as the early adopters of technology, right? They were leading the forefront. But by the time I landed in, in China and I was doing my research in internet cafes in uh, 2002, uh, you walk into an internet cafe and it's just seas of young boys playing Counter-Strike, right? So all of a sudden, internet cafes like opium dens, historically, they became a space of leisure and consumption for the masses. And I think that games became this touchstone, if you will, whereby you know the government um, sort of clamped on to the idea that, okay, here we have all these youth playing games in the internet cafes. This is this perfect um, moment to talk about the dangers of the internet and the dangers of the internet cafe in particular. Alison, you mentioned this one indie video game um, that you reviewed, and it's sort of a a COVID-era video game. In this video game, you you play a truck driver who's just left Wuhan um, right before the city locks down, and it's really the stuff of nightmares. You're sort of endlessly driving around on motorways with low visibility, pulling into petrol stations that won't let you fill up, um, and being turned away at all, uh, you know, at at every post. And eventually you, you crash from fatigue. Um, while the radio is playing um, Xi Jinping droning on in the background. I mean, what, what's the appeal of this game to start with? Nobody actually played the game. It was a prototype made in a game jam in uh, last year. It was organized by China Indie Game Alliance. They were doing a game jam specifically focusing on uh, the pandemic. It's called Gaming Spirit Bomb. So the uh, whole idea is to have an open call for people who have the idea or the skill to make an easy indie game game jam prototype. A lot of people answer the call, 
uh, one of the game is uh, what you were describing. I think it's called Floating on the Highway or Floating in Wuhan. It's based on a, a real news. Uh, at the time, people think anyone from Wuhan is suspicious. It was in the very beginning of the pandemic. Nothing was under control back then. So this driver, I think he started to deliver something before Chinese New Year. So that's before the massive breakout. And he wanted to get back to his hometown. Either his driver license or his ID would show that he's originally from Wuhan. And then he was denied to get off the highway at a lot of the exits. And also uh, sometimes he would be harassed in the parking lot on the highway. Uh, then he has just to drive mindlessly. And he went on national news. And this game maker, I think he did it alone. He saw this news and he wanted to make it. And he did make a game prototype. It's very easy. It's a loop. Like you drive in a 3D, a very simple environment, which is a loop, a circular uh, track. And there's no ending. You just drive and drive and drive. And on the background, you can hear all the radio. Uh, he tuned in a Chinese national radio broadcast. So it's all the news about uh, the pandemic and how it's going on uh, with better control and everything like that. Uh, at the same time, you still need to drive. And you become as a player, you become bored very easily because there's nothing to play. And... Uh, the environment is the same environment. You see the same thing every 30 or 45 seconds. Uh, if you don't want to play anymore, you can just park your truck there, or you can sometimes you accidentally would hit on the barricade and then you die. I asked the designer, like, is there a way to beat the game to win? He said there is, but he hasn't added it and he doesn't think anyone could conquer it. Uh, because the way to win is you have to play the game uh, seven days straight. <laughs> it sounds like games like that are a sort of sly political comment on life in China today. But how, how difficult, Alison, is it for game developers in China? What are the kind of limits within which they have to navigate in order to make a game that can be marketed and that people can play? From what I've seen, if you are a commercial one, especially if you are legit, like middle-sized studio to the very like super big ones, this is not the concern. The concern is more about the marketing, how to reach to people, how to buy or in other way have the resources of a very large traffic. And then for the smaller like indie game makers, from what I've seen, most of them are obsessed with how to make a better game in terms of gameplay and using extremely little budget to do games that are indie, not because of their political ideas, but because of their production budget. Uh, there are a few political ones uh, these years, but it's more on uh, gender issues like LGBT games or feminist games. We were speaking of Internet Cafe. There were actually games that made in a way to represent the experience of the youth in the late 1990s or early 2000s, like how we are framed to be not studying hard, but at least diverting our attention to, to video games. And what kind of unfair treatment did we get? And this was all uh, represented in the narrative of the video game. And it went very popular. And also there were interactive novels, which is very low budget and easy to make, uh, focusing on sexual harassment. How do you notice this is sexual harassment or uh, this is 
I think in mainland China they call it PUA, like pick up artist. But I think the connotation went wider than the word it was originally designed for. So on the political side, because there's licensing policy, you need to get a license to to produce your game, and、uh, game production is very heavy. It involves a lot of people, efforts, time, and money. So people, I think, like everywhere,、uh, a content maker would do self censorship first. There's no exact rules telling you what not to do, but you have to estimate. Otherwise, it means like maybe seven to ten years' work is wasted. In other areas like rap music, we've really seen the government trying to kind of corner that space and take it over and use it to send its own messages. Is that happening in video games, Marcella, or is it just being left to the market to produce safe, self-censored games that people will play? You know, I, I think absolutely the Chinese government is aware of. I mean, first of all, the economic potential of games,、um, but also that they have definitely made efforts to promote games that have like red content, right? That are、um, games that represent China. I think. You know they're not necessarily the most successful commercially. I think is the problem that often these sort of these red games that、um, portray communist China's、um, history are not necessarily the ones that that young people want to play. But they they have also sort of made efforts to promote MMORPGs like massively multiplayer online role playing games that. Are based on Chinese folklore and classic stories like、uh, Shioji, like Journey to the West, as an alternative to the MMORPGs that are coming out of United States from Blizzard、um, games like World of Warcraft, which I think have been very much demonized in China because. They are based on a Norse mythology. They are based on a Western mythology. You even get newspaper articles with Chinese cultural critics、um, back in the day, sort of talking about how World of Warcraft was harmful because it advanced a idea about. Um, the dragon as an evil character, whereas of course the Chinese people are the people of the dragon, and so they want to see the dragon glorified. So the government is aware of both the economic potential of games and cornering the market, the huge market in China,、um, but also the sort of soft power of games, right, and the ability to advance certain narratives,、um, and it's been very much, I think, important. For China to see games that represent their own cultural background, but as I, I've encountered in my fieldwork back in 2009 and 2010, often I was getting told by、um, like the college students and and young gamers that I was talking to that some of those games were like the worst games to play. <laughs> you know that the, that they just weren't as engaging in terms of the the content. So even though、um, narratively. They resonated、um, in terms of the cultural background. They didn't necessarily make for the most most fun games to engage with. Well, I mean, maybe I'll just ask a general question. I don't know which of you can answer it. I'm just curious as to what kind of leverage China has over an American video game company that it's able to get it to sanction a player who's not even in China at the moment. I, I'm really curious about how that happened. I, I I might just jump in and just say every single、um, tech company, American or otherwise, wants to access Chinese、um, audiences, and whether it's Facebook or Blizzard or whoever,、um, they will bend over backwards to access you know sort of、um, a billion 
users or players or whatever. So I, th- I think that really kind of answers um, the the hold or the leverage. Um, but that's, I mean, that's been well documented as well, and those companies um, openly state that themselves. Yeah, I can also add to that that I think, um, you know, another complication is that for Blizzard to operate their games within China, um, they need a local carrier, right? So um, that was part of the huge regulatory battle over World of Warcraft, which I referenced um, back in 2009, was that um, there was this debate um between the governing bodies about the licensing of the game World of Warcraft. There were a huge number of fans in China who wanted to play the game. And there was this huge regulatory holdup where a number of government ministries, Ministry of Culture, Press and Publication, these things have been shuffled around, SARFed, uh, all of these agencies have been shuffled around recently. But um, they all sort of had their hands in the regulation of this game. And the fact that the American companies need this local Chinese carrier in order to operate their games. And they need, of course, all of these approvals just makes it so clear, I think, to companies like Blizzard that their game could be held up at any moment, right? And they they lose access to this market. What I saw in 2009 was like a lot of the gamers who were most devoted to World of Warcraft were jumping ship because they couldn't play on Chinese local mainland servers anymore. And so they were motivated to now jump to Taiwanese servers or elsewhere um, using VPN software so that they could get around the restrictions. And that also was not something that was ideal either for Blizzard or for I think the Chinese government. So there's this kind of push and pull there, but there are many ways in which Blizzard sort of operations in China can be easily held up through regulatory bureaucratic red tape. So Hugh, maybe you could talk us through how games uh, like Animal Crossing... ..and Grand Theft Auto... You're plainly addicted to chaos. Well, I'm not sure that's true, Doc. I'm rich, I'm miserable. How were games used uh, by Hong Kongers for political activism? And particularly, what kind of consequences there might have been for those companies? Studying representations of Hong Kong in video games, as I have been for, for some time, and seeing the protests happening and noticing um, Pikachu, basically, at the protests uh, was what really drew my eye to the presence of Hong Kong in video games and recognising Pikachu from Pokemon Go was really being part of a broader discussion. Pikachu was translated from Cantonese into Mandarin and it upset a lot of uh, Hong Kongers and there were protests outside of Nintendo at that time and, of course, As a result, Pikachu has become uh, a bit of a symbol of Chinese mainlandization within Hong Kong. Hong Kongers have really identified with Pokemon Go because it was a game which was playable in Hong Kong and and wasn't playable in China. And so um, it was really seen as a way in which Hong Kong could identify as not being China. And a way it played out in the protests was in the use of insect rhetoric with terms like cockroaches and locusts being launched at each side of the protest from the other. 
And of course, Pokemon are insects. Pokemon is, is based on Japanese histories of, of insect collecting, but also histories of the loss of space. Uh, the game designer explicitly wanted Japanese children to enjoy uh, the nature that he could see disappearing in in Japan, with the sort of the loss uh, the loss of that environment, and so I think there is a bit of a sense of that happening in Hong Kong as well. But the uh, the Grand Theft Auto protests uh, that you mentioned, I mean that was another sort of very interesting uh, in-game protest. A whole bunch of Hong Kong protesters went into the Chinese servers of Grand Theft Auto and started smashing stuff up, uh, throwing firebombs at, um, at police cars and that sort of thing, while attired in what's become quintessential Hong Kong protester uniform of like yellow helmets and gas masks and otherwise dressed in black. It was really interesting for a range of reasons. I suppose one is that it was it was the game space in that uh, it was a, it was a weird reversal where it was Hong Kongers invading a mainland Chinese game space. It was the it was specifically the mainland Chinese server hosted version of Grand Theft Auto. Hugh, just because I'm not a game player, just to be clear, what you're saying is there was a coordinated attempt by lots of different players at the same time to basically stage a protest within the game, right? That's right. It was a, it was a protest and it was coordinated through uh, LIHKG. The protest online forum, but were they actually sort of shouting, you know, saying protest slogans or was it just action? It was very much action. The whole point of Grand Theft Auto is to smash stuff up and steal cars. So um, it really was just players behaving as they should, like entirely within the, the, the remit of the game space. This is extremely unprofessional. But of course, uh, word spread within the kind of Chinese equivalent across Weibo that there were Hong Kong players storming, storming the servers. And so a whole lot of uh, mainland Chinese players poured in uh, of course, it was you know mainland Chinese servers, and then and then uh, this kind of weird battle. Stay off our turf. Of really just sort of dressed avatars, you know, people kind of dressed as police, uh, representing mainland nationalists, or in sort of you know Hong Kong protester garb. But more than anything, it it really kind of connects protest and performance and play. I should uh, check on the Chinese delegation. They might be catching a chill. It's sort of quite sweet, I think, in a way. All of these people, like vastly different ideologies, ultimately playing together uh, in the game space, really within the, the limits of what the game prescribes as well. I think we have seen quite enough. And Alison, from your vantage point in Hong Kong, were you seeing these kind of conversations going on in the game world uh, when the protests were happening in Hong Kong? Actually, during the protest, uh, our media, I commissioned a writer to write a game called Riot. It's not a Hong Kong game. It's, uh, it's an Italian political activist. He made a game simulating rioting conflict situations based in real contemporary political events, mostly in the West. So I asked a Hong Kong writer to write about it. But when we released it, people were really angry. They were saying, like, why do you still play video games at times like this? Uh, it's not time for it to have fun or to play. So 
I think that's the mainstream idea of playing games. And what Hugh just described is,、uh, especially for online games with multiple players based on a server here in Hong, mostly in Taiwan or in China, these are the spaces where people would meet, and they usually wouldn't talk to each other. And then they, there are so many stories. They there are hates and love. Like people meet as、uh, individual, finally. Um, sometimes there's、uh, a lot of nationalism or localism going on. Like each side would would feel like they have to yell something or hurt each other or just to show off. Like we're better game players than you are. Depends on which game you are.、Um, but also there are stories like、um, Sky, the, the new mobile phone、uh, online multiplayer person game.、Uh, I think earlier last year the Chinese server. I think、uh, the the the, the Game company made a decision that they're going to have international server and Chinese server. Before that, it's only one server, so the Chinese player will cut off from the internet,、uh, from the international players. And then there are a lot of、uh, articles or notices looking for lost friends,、uh, either on that side or on this side. So、uh, right now, I think especially online gaming space is becoming a new, not so new now, a social space. Um, without a strict control, as everywhere else on the internet, it it had a lot of freedom,、uh, and communicative possibilities for the players. Didn't Joshua Wong stage a political protest in Animal Crossing? Hugh, I seem to remember that there were there were some actual protests within games. Ah,、uh, yeah, there was、um, quite a few protests in Animal Crossing, or protest islands. People creating islands in Animal Crossing and、um, putting up protest slogans in that space. There was this weird sort of moment when the security law hadn't come in yet, but it had been announced、uh, late twenty nineteen and into twenty twenty. Protests in Hong Kong really moved from physical space into virtual space. And the Grand Theft Auto was, to my knowledge, the first of those. But、um, particularly as the pandemic set in, then Animal Crossing:、uh, New Horizons really became a significant protest space. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, thinking about what's being popular in China, it's 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 a completely different track to what we have here in the West. I mean, as far as I'm aware, PlayStation and things like that have just made no inroads whatsoever. But because so many people play them, I mean, one of the government's plays has been to,、uh, if you like, turn them from this thing which is,、uh, you know, sort of a waste of t- teenagers' time, into something that you can be patriotic about. So to develop it as an e-sport where China、um, basically dominates the world.、Um, so my question for Marcella is. I mean, how successful have they been in in channeling patriotism, if you like, towards esports? It's been very difficult because、uh, if we start from the point of digital games in China being kind of stigmatized, being treated as this spiritual opium by the press,、um, uh, the fears about young people playing games in the internet cafes. Um, one of the things that fascinated me in my my research is that to become an esports athlete, you have to start by essentially being addicted to playing these games and playing them nonstop in an internet cafe. So, you know, <laughs> it's this very weird situation in which、um, the people who are the professionals were initially the ones who were being decried by the media and by the government as you know wasting their life away by you know not. 
pursuing their studies and playing nonstop in the internet cafes. So um, there's been a lot of very careful work in trying to delineate productive games um, from the wasteful games, right? And I think that the types of games that are always cast as wasteful are, you know, without a doubt, always the massively multiplayer online role-playing games, the MMORPGs, which are presumed to be more about fantasy, more about escapism, more about sort of avoiding the real world. And there's been a lot of sort of ideological work in developing the idea of the game that are played as esports as being productive, as skill building, as teaching young people um, skills that even if they don't become professionals in esports, would still serve them well in their career as you know, just professionals out in the world. And that's what I heard a lot of from the college students I spoke to in Shanghai, who worked also very hard to explain to me how what they were doing when they were playing games was very different than what all those, um, as they would say, the society youth were doing when they were wasting their time in the cafes, just playing games for escapism. Um, what they were doing was was building skills in, um, you know, quick things thinking, strategic thinking, um, team building, etc. And this has been um, a line that you hear from the young people who are playing games themselves on through to government officials in, you know, the Ministry of Sport who say quite clearly that esports is very different from internet games. Esports are productive, internet games are wasteful. And, you know, that's a very, um, a very false and clearly sort of constructed division. I think when you talk to professional um, esports players, they'll say, you know, yeah, there, there really isn't that much in, in reality that separates these games. I'm curious because as part of your fieldwork, you you hung out with some of these esports teams in the early days. I mean, what's life like for these athletes? Yeah, I mean, in in the early days, it's sort of a decade ago now that I was in Shanghai with some of these esports teams, but um, they were also sort of often put up in like apartments, and they would all just live there. And um, I just recall sort of going in to interview some people at two in the afternoon and they were all just like tumbling out of bed because they'd been up all night practicing. So, you know, again, like I I went in and I thought, wow, this is just like a private internet cafe, right? This is what, um, you know, I, I see in these public internet cafes, but of course, these young people are now being paid to to play these games professionally. But there also, I think, was a sort of element of exploitation, if, if I'm going to be frank about it, and that they're getting these young people when they're teenagers, they're, their only hope is to, to make it as a professional athlete. And then how long is your career as a professional esports athlete going to last? What are your earnings? You know, often your earnings are sort of dependent on how often you win. And there's a real issue of like, what happens after your your short esports career is over or after the game that you play becomes obsolete. Um, you train all your, your life in a single game and then that game is supplanted by a new game that comes on the scene. So there was like this sort of like frontier uh, element about it that was exciting, but there was also, I think, a sort of very bleak aspect of it in terms of what lay in the future for these young people. And I saw a lot of people going into like professional gambling online because they were good at it. But it was like, you know, not what they foresaw for themselves necessarily as their their career. 
Even in the um, at the NPC, the National People's Congress, just a couple of weeks ago, Xi Jinping w- has been warning about the dangers of video games and worrying about video game addiction. And I mean, already there's this kind of nanny state policies where people under 18 are not allowed to play video games at night and only allowed to play 90 minutes on weekdays. It seems to be there's a real mismatch between what they're trying to do and what they're actually preaching. Can video games even work when there were so many limits placed on them, you know, both on content and on how you play and in who can play? And then, you know, talk about whether you need facial recognition and real name identification and all of this kind of stuff. It just seems that uh, it's an industry which is so fraught in all kinds of ways. Video games, it has to be said, I mean, it's, it's huge. It's like food. It's so vast and broad and, as, a, as an umbrella term, so much stuff gets shoved underneath it. And there is a lot of what we call video games that, that I support and a lot of it that I don't, that I would probably concur with the Chinese government, is basically just digital opium. Uh, it's, you know, it's designed with Pavlovian levels of engagement in mind. But I think that the issue of any government and governments all around the world struggle with this is, is like how to regulate. The big problem is, as you say, anything with that level of difference and diversity and nuance with blanket coverage, you're going to squash so much stuff. And And, and the games ban is a case in point. I spoke to so many Chinese developers at that time who were really struggling, saying, you know, our company can't survive. And yet, at the same time, I agree that a lot of what gets developed as games is utter crap and should never see marketplace. Uh, It's derivative and it's basically just designed to make people engage blindly for as long as possible. But at the same time, I'm trying to create works of art that talk about Chinese history and culture and heritage, and they're also getting banned. So, Marcel, could, could I maybe put it to you that, that part of what Xi Jinping is, is fretting about is, is Chinese gamer culture itself, this sort of people who self-identify as diaosi, which you've written about in the past, as losers or, or tools, as you, are, as, you, as you translate it. I mean, is, is that part of the concern, is that, that people are self-identifying as losers and opting out of Xi Jinping's China dream? Well, I mean, I think that certainly is part of it. I think there's always been a concern that games get in the way of, again, the development of the productive Chinese citizen, that this becomes something that people can can do instead of participating, as you're saying, in, in the China dream. Uh, and gamers have said as much that, you know, they're dissatisfied with their situation in real life, that they find that there are no opportunities for socioeconomic advancement, that they feel that, you know, there's government corruption um, at all levels. And and therefore, yes, they declare their status as, as losers and, and say, you know, well, what other options are we given in Chinese society today? I'd rather go play games because at least within the context of the game, I can and I can find a sense of like self-worth and satisfaction. I think another thing, however, to bring up about the sort of renewed interest in um, controlling games 
uh, has also to do with the development in the international community of stricter regulations around games and the development of discussions about internet gaming disorder. The World Health Organization classified um, internet gaming disorder as an actual um, clinical disorder in 2018. Um, they've been listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of, of Mental Disorders by the American Psychological Association. And so in a way, I think the Chinese government is feeling vindicated because the Chinese government was one of the first governments to announce that internet addiction was a problem, and they did so in 2008. And nobody else in the international community paid any attention. They kind of like scoffed. But now in 2018, all of a sudden you have the World Health Organization backing the idea that internet games are leading to addiction. Um, and I think many people in the scholarly community find that very problematic. I certainly find it problematic. I think, you know, what types of behavior get set aside as problematic and addictive. It's very subjective um, and is very much related to our own panic about technology. But either way, I think this is also why we see the government kind of, and Xi Jinping like expressing a renewed interest in locking down games and controlling them because, because now they have also the, the international community backing them um, in this discussion of internet um, gaming addiction and internet addiction. So Alison, I mean, I, I wonder what you thought about Marcella's um, point about the WHO labeling video game use as an addictive illness. Uh, I mean, how do you see that? And do you think that there are aspects of the Chinese gaming industry that, that are of concern, for example, sort of in, in-game purchases, things like that? The earlier discourse on game addiction has less to do with this monetary system. It's more about, at least in China, it's about the control over young people between school, family, now you have a internet slash game. So that's the fair. And the early discourses are now fought back a lot. Uh, there's a joke made that uh, some people at my age said, now I look at my parents, they're reading all this garbage news on WeChat from morning to night. I want to send her to some kind of rehabilitation places like to get rid of her internet addiction. Or they also play casual games, like gaming addiction. But it runs as a joke. I'm just going to ask one final question to all three of you. I I feel like we have the same conversation when we're talking about literature and films and art in China. You know, can it ever manage to sort of succeed as a, a global power in whatever field, given the amount of curbs that there are on creativity? So I just wanted to ask each of you to kind of look forward and say what you see as the future of sort of Chinese games and is there even a future or is it something which is corralled just so tightly that this really serves as a drag or creativity? Maybe you first, Hugh. Yeah, look, I think that the conversations that I've had with developers in China, particularly at the time of the game ban, people were were quite um, despondent and annoyed because they felt, uh, as you described, like, you know, it was a bit of a nanny state in that regard. Having said that, some of the games that uh, have come out of that community, I mean, I've always approached games as an art form. My background is in fine art. And 
if you want to look at some of the best game art in the world, I think that uh, China is the place to go to. And I mean, I'm, I'm not simply talking about art in video games, but but artists like, you know, Feng Mengbo and Cao Fei and Lu Yang, um, uh, conceptual artists who are using video games as a medium. Uh, and I think that um, China is really leading the world in, in that regard in many respects. And um, and I think that it, the same is happening in video games, but many of those video games don't make it into the West. Um, there is some incredible and beautiful digital heritage that is taking place in, in mainland Chinese video games, um, which, which, yeah, do seem to be flourishing at, at the moment. I think it's um, quite an incredible time right now. And are you, Alison, equally hopeful? Uh, we're answering this question actually in the height of Chinese gaming industry. Uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, like especially Shanghai. Like most of the decent studios or indie studios are based in Shanghai. Right now, they're going through a manhunt of talents. They have too much investment uh, invested by other people or made some profit before. So they're searching for talented people. And in that regard, I, I think it's giving the market is quite promising. Also, when you're talking about Chinese game industry, um, players like Tencent or ByteDance or uh, what's the other one, Perfect World, they're not. Uh, they're already not in China only. Like they're in Middle East, in Africa, in the U.S. So sometimes you think you're talking about a game that's not Chinese at all. It probably already belongs to Tencent for to some degree. So it, it depends on what kind of uh, Chinese game you're talking about. And finally, Marcella, what is your forecast for the next, say, five years of Chinese gaming? Well, I, I do think Chinese gaming is, is so big <laughs> that it's impossible to stop at this point, right? I mean, it's it's the way that, you know, I think the government is very savvy about knowing, like, when when things are already so popular that you can't do anything about them, essentially. I think there's, there's ways in which we see, obviously, censorship of certain games and things like that and restrictions about game development. But I mean, the esports scene, for example, in China is gigantic. It's a huge source of soft power, um, again, for China. And I don't think that um, they'll be curtailing that in any way, because they are, they are already considered sort of a leader in, in that field of esports. And, um, and anytime I go to um, China Joy, which is like a, a big digital games expo in, in Shanghai, it's just, I mean, it's so enormous. It's one of the biggest, grandest events like I've ever witnessed. And again, I just don't think you can curtail that sort of um, interest of the, the Chinese people. And as we were talking about a moment ago, just the fact that people who grow up playing games in the internet cafes are now the designers, are now the people who are entering government. I think ultimately we will see attitudes shift towards games. And I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll see that um, globally as well. You know, I think all of these sort of early efforts to talk about gaming addiction and um, perhaps are, are not like completely misguided, but I think that they're also born of a misunderstanding of just how um, most people engage with games in their everyday lives. Hugh, Alison, Marcella, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thanks. Thank Grant. you. I'm Grant Smith, and you've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests and to my co-host, Louisa Lim. 
And a reminder, our fifth anniversary is coming soon, where we try to answer your burning China questions. Contact us on our Facebook page or get in touch with us on Twitter. Editing for this episode was by Andy Hazel. Background research by Julia Bergen and Xu Chong. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins. And our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danta. Bye for now.